Well, good morning. Glad you're here. Uh, we are in our book, the ne- uh, we're in our series in the book of Nehemiah. I encourage you to turn there. It's in your Old Testament. You also can follow along on the live page, on the scripture page. There are links there that'll take you to the scriptures uh, that we'll use. You can scroll through those and even have those later to look back through. Uh, if there's something you missed, something you want to go back and look at, those scriptures are there. That's why we have them there uh, for that purpose. Um, I uh, attempted something I said I would never attempt this past week. I went skiing, and I'm horrible. I'm absolutely awful. Um, having ankle surgery on my left ankle, I can't really turn my ankle the right way to, like, stop. And so let's just say I was heading towards a building at one point, like, like kind of like, um, Melissa said like uh, Clark Griswold when we told her about it, you know, like when he's on the sled and I just ditched, like I just went boom, head down, like just crashed because it was either crash or run into the building. And, um, and there were other people in our family that will remain nameless that decided not to ditch and instead crashed. And we won't talk about who that was, but, um, it, I wish I would have gotten it on video. We probably could have made a lot of money, like a lot of money. And so, yeah, we got away for just a couple of days. Um, we needed to get out of town and just spend some time together as a family, and so we did that. Uh, and it was fun. We had a good time, and uh, I learned that I am not a skier. So, um, and so the title of our series fits well, because I think that, um, and I didn't get my clicker. You're going to have to clip for me, Coda. Um, the title of my series is Trouble and Disgrace. And, and that's pretty much what I look like on skis was just trouble and disgrace. Like, like, it's like, man, that guy's in trouble. And then it's, oh, he's gonna, yep, he did. And that's, that's me. That was, and so Nehemiah in his day, you have to remember where the people of God are at this point in the story. I'm gonna remind you of this every week because if you miss the context, then what happens is we take all of this out of context and we apply things that, in the wrong way. Remember, God's people have been in slavery for 70 years. God warned them to change or he was going to discipline them. He was going to bring in another nation to discipline them. They wouldn't listen. He warned them with prophet after prophet after prophet after decade after decade after hundred of years, hundred of years. He just kept saying over and over again, this is coming, coming, you need to be careful. And they didn't listen. And so he said, okay, I'm taking my hands off. And so he just removed his hand. God has to like do something to to make things bad, to bring trouble and disgrace. We think that God has to actually like come in and like do something to us. He doesn't. All God has to do to bring trouble and disgrace because we live in a world full of trouble and disgrace. We live in a world where we're constantly going down a ski slope, never knowing where we're gonna end up or what we're gonna hit. All God has to do is take his hands off. That's it. If he takes his hands off, we will do a fine job of wrecking and crashing. That's all he has to do. And see, that's kind of where God's people have been. And now God has brought them back into the promised land. It's been over 70 years. They've rebuilt the temple under Ezra. They built the temple first before they built their security, before they built their walls, and before they got everything else in order. The first thing God told them was build a temple. And the temple they built was actually kind of puny compared to the one Solomon built. It didn't have all the gold and jewels and all the things Solomon had, number one, because God told them to build it differently, too, because if they had all that stuff, it they would have came in and robbed it. So they built a simple temple, and God said, I want 
your hearts right before you get security boundaries and all that right. Does that make sense? And so that's exactly what happened under Ezra. Now you have Nehemiah, and Nehemiah has come, and as we saw last week, God has gotten a hold of Nehemiah's heart. This week's sermon, the title is, God Laid on My Heart. This is a term you're going to hear all around the place all the time. You'll hear people say, well, God has laid this on my heart. As a matter of fact, most of the time when you hear this, it will be an argument that you can't argue with. Because if God laid it on my heart, and if I can show you a Bible verse where God said he laid it on my heart, then you can't argue with me because it's me and God and you're not allowed in. That's, that's today's culture. That's where we stand with this idea of God laid on my heart. And once he's done that, everybody else is out. What we see of Nehemiah is the complete opposite of that. God lays something on Nehemiah's heart. And his response, and we looked at this last week, was to mourn and to, and to pray and to seek God. As a matter of fact, here's what the scripture says in Nehemiah 1.1. It says, these are the words of Nehemiah. When I was in the fortress city of Susa... And Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant. The Jewish remnant was the group of people that were allowed to return because Babylon got beat by Persia. God said, Babylon, if you don't treat my people well, I'm going to take my hand of blessing off of you. And then Persia's going to come in and kill you. That's exactly what happened. And now Persia's in charge. Now the Persian king, Nehemiah, finds himself a cupbearer and a slave to the Persian king here. And it says the remnant that had survived the exile. And so these are the people that had survived. There were a ton that died. There were a ton that because of their stupidity, they died. They were slaughtered. They were killed. That's horrible. It's awful. There were probably people killed because of other people's stupidity. That's our world. We could all be dead in a moment because some idiot pushes the wrong button and starts a nuclear war. And it's no fault of yours or mine. We're all dead. Thanks for that whistle. No, I'm just kidding. And so, so that's exactly what could happen. And that's what happens here. And so it says, look. He says, the remnant in the province, they said to me, the remnant in the province, those who returned, remember, Nehemiah didn't get to return. He was a slave. Wouldn't you have loved to be able to return to the land of promise, to the land of your family? Where you, Nope, not him. He has to stay and be the cupbearer. We talked about Nehemiah's life. The cupbearer drinks poison for the king so he doesn't drink it. That's the cupbearer's job. Now, Nehemiah's job was a little bit bigger. He would have organized all the drinks and how they got to the king, so none of it got tainted all the way to. It would have been a big job. And it says, the remnant survived exile are in great trouble and disgrace. When I heard these words, because he talked about that the city gates and the walls were torn down. When I heard these words, Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He didn't just give up social media. He didn't eat. Maybe he didn't drink for days, except what he had to drink as the cupbearer. We're talking, he thinks about the fact that it's been years, God said he would restore, we have a temple, and the people don't care that the city and the world they live in is in ruins. And Nehemiah is broken over it. He, he just can't even function to a certain point. And then it says, 
The king granted my request, for I was graciously strengthened by my God in chapter 8. And so Nehemiah prays. His prayer is one of the most beautiful prayers in scriptures. We looked at that. It, it's, it's kind of a model of the Lord's prayer when you look in the New Testament, what Nehemiah prays. And for some reason, the king of Persia grants his request. Remember, one of the key elements of that is that they are in the fortress of Susa. One of the key elements is you have a king of Persia and a queen. And the king and the queen together, remember who the queen was? Esther at some point. And Esther was the queen in the city of Susa. And so here you have this situation where you have the king and the queen. You have Esther who was the queen honored by the Lord, who was raised up, who got put in a beauty pageant she didn't want to be in. If you read the story of Esther, it's not like a fun rah-rah book. It's a woman that got used. And God turned it around for his glory. And here he is again probably using what had happened under Esther as blessing to Nehemiah because the king says, yeah, I remember the queen Esther. I remember the, the queen is sitting with him. We want you to go because we remember what Esther did and how she served. See, you don't know what your life, even with the trouble and disgrace that you have, you don't know what a heart surrendered to God it's a mess like Esther's life was a mess, you have no idea how generations later it may lead to incredible things for the glory of God. You have no idea. The problem is we want it for us. We don't give a rip about the next generation. If I can't have it for me and I can't have it now, then this God isn't real and I'll move on to find the one that is. That's our heart. That's my heart. That's your heart. That's God's people's heart and that's why they're in the mess they're in. Because God keeps telling them, look for something bigger than yourself and you. So we pick back up the story. Nehemiah has now been granted permission to go. We pick it back up in 2.8. It says, the king granted my requests, for I was graciously strengthened by my God. I love this. Nehemiah, as we looked at last time, he says, it's not this king that's doing this work. I recognize that God is working through this king, and God is the one doing the work. And then it says, I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates. This would have been a long travel. It would have taken quite some time. Nehemiah takes a big entourage with him that, that, that he talks about. And it says... The king had also sent officers of the infantry, see this, and cavalry with me. When Senbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to seek the well-being of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. Of course they are. You don't want any rivals when you're building your kingdom. I don't want anybody to mess with what I'm building. I don't want anybody to mess with the way things are and the way things are going. I don't want somebody to come in and reestablish what, what's torn down. You also have to understand who these guys are, okay? The first guy that he mentions, Sanballat, the Hornite, this would have been a guy that, that was a Moabite. The Moabites came from Lot's daughters getting their father drunk and sleeping with him to get pregnant. Lot lived in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. What a wonderful family story. The Moabites, because of that sin and because of other things that they did to the children of Israel, were not allowed to come into the temple, were not allowed to worship. They could be on the outside, but not into the inner chamber. We'll see that later in the book of Nehemiah, how he deals with that. The Moabites, for all intensive purposes, had repented. However, there were some who did repent. Do you remember someone who was a Moabite? 
Who repented? Who? Ruth. (laughs) Boaz. Okay? Ruth and Boaz. Big story in the Bible because King David comes from Ruth. We'll look at his life and Jesus comes from King David. So God used a Moabite. God can use Moabites, but this Moabite doesn't care about the God of Israel. He only wants God and God's people to be done away with. They do, he does not want God's people to have a rightful place because this, so this is racial tension. You think we have racial tension today? That's nothing compared to what the Bible talks about with racial tension. I mean, this is bad. And then the other guy is the Ammonite, right? The Ammonites were a thorn in the side of Israel. These were people that lived in the land of Jerusalem and Judea, and God asked them to move out. He said, I'm going to send my people in, and, I, and he warned them. He said, you're, you're going to need to move. And they're like, we're not moving. This is our land. We're not, we're not giving it to you. He said, well, you cannot give it to me, or you can give it to me, or you cannot give it to me, and I'll kill you. It's one of the two. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to annihilate you. I'm going to ask my people to fight you. In other words, I need you to surrender to me. This is my plan. See, this is the kind of stuff God tells us. And then we look at him and go, well, I, I just can't believe in a God that would do that. I can't believe in a God that would have. And yet at the same time, we're looking at him and saying, you don't have permission because I'm God. I get what I get and I have what I have because I'm in charge and I don't want anybody else in charge. So when God says, comes in and says, I'm asking you to put me in charge of your land and I'm asking you to move and there's other places you can move to. and No, we're not doing it. So then they went to war against these people. The Ammonites in particular, God told to, to, to get rid of them. If they won't get out of the land, you're going to have to go to war. You're going to have to push them out of the land. You're going to have to annihilate them. And, and, they, and the, God's people didn't do that. Now it's coming back to haunt them. These are people, these two guys represent two people groups that are all through the Old Testament that just cause a mess for God's people because God's people won't do, you ready for this? Won't do what God says to do relationally with this group of people and this group of people won't do what God says to do relationally with God and his people. And we're still there today. We've got to listen to what God says about relationships and why he says it. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but as Nehemiah is here, you have to understand these two guys are going to come up through the whole book. And the reason they keep coming up is because it's exposing and it shows the difference between a woman like Ruth who was a Moabite who said, I leave the Moabites, I leave my religion, I leave my homeland, and I believe in the God of Israel and Yahweh, and I surrender to him for his salvation. And she looks at Naomi and she says, your God will be my God and your people will be be my people and I leave that mess. That's hard to do. And yet these guys are going to fight and be a thorn in Nehemiah. says this, Nehemiah 2.11 says, after I arrived in Jerusalem and I've been there three days. So Nehemiah arrives with this huge entourage. Picture this. Picture Bloomington. They shut down downtown, Right? And like, it's in the papers, everybody knows you're here, you're here with an entourage, and everybody's like, what is going on? I mean, we were driving out of town on, I think it was Thursday, no, it was Wednesday morning when we were heading out of town, and there were like buses coming, and like there were five buses and police cars escorting these buses, and everybody's getting over, and we're like, who is that? Like, that they get a police escort, and we're like, oh, it's probably for basketball, NCAA basketball. I'm like, yeah, because that's the most important thing right now, and all the trouble and mess we're in is that we have a tournament. I mean, 
If we're going to save the world, we need to bring back the NCAA tournament as the first step of salvation in Indiana, right? I mean, everybody's clearing out the for these guys, and we're like, who is this? That's what would have happened with Nehemiah. He's coming into town. They have no idea really probably who Nehemiah is, maybe a little bit. He's coming with this huge entourage. He's been there three days, and he hasn't told anyone why he's there. Would that not bother you a little bit? I mean, I just had to pull over for less than three minutes, and it bothered me a lot, right? Like, they are, I, I got a schedule to keep. We got to get there, and this, these punks going to a basketball game. I mean, I'm, that's what's going through my head, right? And so here he is, and he said, I'd been there three days. I got up at night. See, he knows if he goes out during the day, he's going to have people follow him. Because you want to be around the popular guy. The guy with power. And so Nehemiah gets up. He's already been threatened by these two other groups. And he's going out alone at night. This is stupid from a leadership. I'm just being honest. Like, dude, don't do this. What are you doing going out? He's like, well, I trust the Lord. I know what he's got me here. He told me I'm going to get to rebuild the wall. So I'm just going to do it. I'm not scared. So he goes out at night. I took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. See, he's had something laid on his heart and he hasn't told anybody about it yet. You know what's amazing to me? I'm always amazed at Christians that the second they get something laid on their heart, it is posted everywhere. They don't pray about it. They don't talk to their pastor, their church. They don't talk to their discipler, their family. Oh, no, 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 no. I have a word from God and all of you are gonna hear about it. Jesus took 30 years before anybody heard about his heart. 30 years. Working construction. And if I can't share it in 30 seconds, oh my goodness. I gotta let people know. Why don't you just pause for a minute, take some time. He had to travel that whole time and pray. Take some time when you get there. Listen, when we came to Bloomington, we didn't plant a church for six months. We moved to town, and we had a moving truck and nowhere to live. That's it. We, didn't, we thought we had a place to live. We weren't sure about it. I didn't have it lined up. You can say, bad on you, Matt. Probably true. But that's what happened. We came to Bloomington, and we took the first six months to go to other churches and try to get the spiritual climate of our city. I didn't want to just be another church plant that came in, grew, and then shrunk, and then another popular group came in and grew and shrunk, and then another pop, because that's what I've seen happen for the last 10 years. I, I'm not going to give you the names. I can name the churches that when I came in, this was the popular church. Now they're, they're a third to a quarter of the size they were, and now this one was the popular church. And now that one's just decreased, and now this one's the popular. Over and over again, because there's a new guy who has a new word and a new heart. Oh, we got to follow him. Maybe he does. I don't know. I was the new guy in town. But I went around to pastors and told them, I'm not looking to take your sheep. If someone from your church comes to, comes to our church and they're a member at your church, I'm sending them back. Period. Now, if you're attending that church, you've never become a member, I get that. But if you're a member of another church and then you come into our church and you want to be a member at our church, you need to go back and deal with your first marriage before I'm going to say maybe you should get remarried. Otherwise, you're just going to end up leaving ours for something better. Nehemiah is taking the time as a leader to look at the situation 
around him. He's heard about the city walls. He's seen it. Look at what happens. This is an important story. Look at what can happen, or be careful what what can happen, and, and what can happen if we're not careful. 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 is the story of David having a desire, something to do in his heart for God. 7, 1 through 5 says this, When the king had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. So this is King David. He's been at war. He was trying to run from Saul and not fight with Saul. Saul gets killed. He's been at war. He's had to fight all these nations. Attacked him. It's been a mess. I mean, and finally, it's kind of like, okay, we're done. We're not fighting. We're, and it says, God had given him rest. He recognizes it was God who did it on his behalf. And the king said to the prophet, to the Nathan the prophet, look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. In other words, David built for himself as a king a really nice house, a cedar house, beautiful home for himself. And he looks up one day and he's like, so I'm at peace. We've conquered everyone. I've got this gorgeous, wonderful home, and God's still in the tabernacle, which is a tent. (laughs) Hmm, that's problematic for me. So David has a wonderful idea. He says, Nathan told the king. Actually, it wasn't David's idea. Nathan speaks up and told the king, go and do all that is on your heart, for the Lord is with you. In other words, Nathan says, oh, David, you've been blessed. Look at all your earthly blessing. Look at how your out. Look at how it's all played out. God is with you, so just do what you want. He, he's going to bless you. He's gonna, God just wants your best life now. He wants to bless you. You just do it. And, and, and he knows that David is going to build a temple. Like if I, look, look David's not going to sell his cedar house and live in a double wide. Hear me out. Let me say that again. David isn't thinking about selling his cedar house and living in a double wide. He's thinking, I got a really nice house and it looks bad compared to God's. I need to build God something big so I can justify what I have. That's exactly what's going on in David's heart, most likely. He doesn't see it. He doesn't see it that way. He doesn't understand it. But that's what he's wrestling with. Look at what he says. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Nathan gets a a word. (laughs) Hey, Nathan, you spoke wrongly. You spoke up too soon. And it says, go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build a house for me to live in? (laughs) David, seriously. You you think you can build me a house? Do you understand who I am? If I wanted to build a house, I'd build my own house. Like, you think you can build me a house? You think you can do... What are you thinking? Does that make sense? And so he says, but that night the word came to him. Go to my servant, say, this is what the Lord says. And the answer to the question is, no. You're probably not supposed to build a house. That's what he's saying. Then in 2 Samuel 7, 8, it says, now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of hosts says, I. And then God goes on a rant And God goes on a rant of things saying, I've said this, I did this, I did this for you, I did that for you. In other words, David, why are you looking to do all this stuff for me? Why don't you just trust me to do for you 
No, 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 no. I got to do something. I got to do something. I got to do something. Then the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Notice, he doesn't say I'll establish your kingdom, David. I'm going to establish his kingdom. It's not about you, David. It's about somebody else. And then he says, I love this. He goes on, forever. (laughs) He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then King David went in, sat in the Lord's presence and said, who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me to this far? Brought me this far. See, David finally gets it. He comes to the place where he's like, I'm trying to do all this great stuff for God and I just need to just trust him. I, I just need to look to him and say, I'm going to trust you with where I am and trust. And the first thing David does is he goes into the Lord's presence just like Nehemiah. He doesn't run out in front and start doing stuff and then saying, God, bless everything I'm doing. That's what we're taught in our culture. It's America. You're free. And you got, you got the freedom to go and do stuff. We need more people that will pause and go before the Lord and say, I just... I want to check in with God and then do the simple things God tells us we can do. Like, I don't know, manage your finances well. Manage your time well. Invest in the people around you and in the body of Christ. Share your faith with those that you see on a daily basis. You know, all the little things that we're supposed to do that we're like, well, none of that's big, and so I want to go do something else. Does that make sense? And and what David is doing is says, King David went in, he sat in the Lord's presence and said, who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Who am I? Let me ask you, have you ever asked yourself that question? Who am I? Who am I? See, most of the time, we're trying to convince people that they're something special and big and awesome so that we can then get them to do things. What you see in scripture is when people come face to face with the reality of God, they recognize that they are nothing, that they have nothing to offer God, that their ideas stink. (laughs) And God says, thank you. I love you. Now let's start small and let's build from there. (laughs) Because I love you and I died for you and I care for you. See, that's what God does. Look at what David says in Psalm 37. Most scholars believe this is a Davidic song. In 37, 1 through 6, it says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. Pause. This is a verse everybody loves to quote. You'll find this on bathroom walls. You'll find this in kitchens. You'll find this on the covers of of Bibles, right? That, That the delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know what the problem is? We leave out the first part. We just like the part that says he will give you the desires of your heart. If you read Psalm 37, it goes on to say this. Do not be agitated. It says this before this. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong. For they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. The simple things. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Making your righteousness shine like the dawn and your justice like the noonday. 
I love the fact that God lays out, look, you keep getting agitated. You got to fix something. You got to do something. How about you just sit in my presence? How about you just pause and trust me? How about you ask me what I delight in so that then I can change your heart to be my delight? No, 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 no. I've got things I delight in. I got things I want. I got things I've got to do. You know what breaks my heart more than anything sometimes when I hear people say? Is when people say something like this. Man, I just, you know, I want Jesus to come back, but I I just don't know if I want him to come back before I get married or have sex or before I have children or... Think about that statement for about two seconds. There are things in this world that are so much better than him. There are things that I have to experience that are so much better than than just being with him and delighting in him. And and other people got to do those things, and and I envy the fact that they're going to have kids, and they get to do that, and I don't. How dare you, God, not give me my heart's desires? Guys, this is dangerous. And so when Nehemiah says, I I want to do what God wants to do, we see him for the rest of the book asking God, what do you want me to do? And doing it. And calling the people to do what God wants them to do. Goes on to say this in the psalm. It says, be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way. Man, there's nothing more that agitates us. Though that group of buses were prospering in their way while I was pulled over. Like literally, they had police escorts to prosper in their way. And I'm like, I'm going to just follow them. If they were going the same direction I was, I'd be like, here we go. Like, I'm with them, you know. I'm really not. You're never tempted to do that? I mean, I am. I'm tempted. Like, I am. And then it says, look at this. But the man who carried prospers in a way by the man who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger. Give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. That's a future inheritance, not something you get right now. Do you believe that there's a future inheritance? Nehemiah did. He's not rebuilding Jerusalem because he thinks that if we just rebuild it, we'll have our best life now. Nehemiah is going to rebuild Jerusalem and go right back to Persia to be a slave in Susa. Go right back to the job of being told what to do and drinking poison every day, possibly. He doesn't get his best life now. He just knows this is what God's heart is. His city is in ruins. The the world, his people are in trouble and it's a disgrace and I've got to do something about it. Look, we have to have that kind of heart when we look at people, that we see their lives, we see their trouble, we see their disgrace. It doesn't mean we can always fix it, but we step into it and we give them the tools. We tell them how they can fix it. That's what Nehemiah does the rest of the book and the people have to respond. And if they don't respond... You'll see in a minute later, not today, but later, Nehemiah basically says, fine, if you don't want to rebuild where your family's part of the wall is, the troops and the enemy is going to come right through that section first and kill all of you. That's a lot of pressure. (laughs) And see, we don't believe spiritually that our weaknesses and our spiritual problems actually open a door for our enemy into our body. 
well, that's my problems and my fit. No, 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 no. We have to go before the Lord and confess our sins and others can help us rebuild if we can't rebuild and we partner together to build what God wants to build, which is his kingdom come. His will be done. It goes on in Jeremiah and says this, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? In other words, none of you can. We try to understand our hearts. We try to figure it out. Most of us do it without God's word. And then it says, I, Yahweh, examine the mind. I test the heart to give each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. That seems really bad. Like, I'm in trouble because I know what I deserve for the stuff that goes on up here and goes on in here. That's why God knew that, and he writes this in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. God says, I am going to provide a way. And he did that through Jesus. He said, I'm going to provide a way for judgment that you deserve to be put on someone else, Jesus Christ. God doesn't let judgment slides. He puts it on someone else on your behalf. And if we understand that, our response will be like Ezekiel. We'll be like, I'm yours, Lord. Put whatever you want in here because I'm done with it. You've paid the price. It's, it's what you want now. And then I, I want to know your word. I want to know your statutes. I want to know your ordinances. I want them. I want to dig into them. I want to honor you. I want to love you. That's the heart of someone like David, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Nathan. David goes on to actually save up a bunch of money for Solomon to build a temple. I would argue God never wanted a temple, just like God never wanted a king. God told his people, I don't want you to have a king, because if you have a king, you're going to have to submit to that king, and that's not going to go well for you. And the people said, but everybody else got a king. I want a king. He said, okay, if you got a king, here it is. They picked their king, and it went very badly. God rose up David. It still went badly, but not as bad. Because David had a heart after God. And the same with the temple. The people decided, we're going to build this glorious, wonderful temple. And Solomon, to keep the temple, made treaty after treaty. And he married 700 foreign women to keep the temple under control. 700 foreign women. So that he could keep the peace around the temple. That's crazy to me. It's crazy that Solomon would do that, but that's because he had to keep that thing that was most precious, the temple that my dad told me to build. No, no, that's not what we're talking about in this circumstance. And I love the fact that Ezekiel says, it's gonna cause you to want to obey me. Look at what Jesus says in John. He tells us, your heart must not be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In other words, we can't make the place here for anymore. We're not called to go back and take Jerusalem again. We tried crusades. It went very badly. It's not God's intent. God said, now I'm building a place for you. That's what he told David in 2 Samuel. But Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls because God is using his act as a temporary picture of what he can do in our lives and in our hearts. And he says, if I go away and prepare a place, I'll come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. I love that. 
He's like, I want you to be with me. And since you built a temple, my presence is going to reside in that temple until I tear it down and I make a new temple, the human heart. And so that's the way this is going to go. And Nehemiah is this incredibly obedient, surrendered servant. Look at what he says in Nehemiah 2. It says, the only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate towards the serpent's well and the dung gate. These are all gates you can... There's a whole thing online where you can talk about all the gates and what they mean. I'm not going to get into that, just so you know. They're gates. Things enter, things exit. There's purposes for why they enter there and why they exit there. There's a reason they have a dung gate, because they made animal sacrifices, and animal sacrifices make a lot of dung. That's poo-poo, okay, if you don't know what dung means. And so you got to take the dung out, and you throw it on the dung hill. By the way, that's also reference to our sin in Scripture, <laughs> often. There's the sheep gate. Guess what happens at the sheep gate? Sheep. They go in and out. The fish gate. You know what happens at the fish gate? That's where most of the fishermen come in and out and trade fish. Like, it, some of these are really, like, simple. But anyway, he goes on. He says, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on the fountain gate and the king's pool, but further down, it became too narrow for my animal to go through. In other words, it's, it's so destroyed, he can't get around the city because there's so much rubble. That's how destroyed this city is. And then it says, so I went up at night by the way of the valley and I inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. So he goes around the city to inspect the city at night. Nehemiah 2.16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, or officials for the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, do you see the trouble we're in? In other words, he hasn't told the people yet that I'm here to fix the wall for you. He's trying to get them motivated to fix it for themselves. This is genius. He's looking at them and he's saying, look, I've been around the city. You guys are living this mess. What? <laughs> you guys are just content to live in the trouble and disgrace and rubble and be like, oh, well, it's just the way it is. And Nehemiah's like, no. We can do something. We can, I mean, you don't be content with that. And so he looks and he says, he hasn't told him yet. And he asks, um, I'm just wondering, do you guys see the trouble that you're in? trouble I'm doing fine I'm, I mean we got food we got a roof over our heads we're good there's no trouble do you guys see the trouble we're in as a nation right now I mean I know about you but I I spend some time crying on a regular basis it just, it just overwhelms me I see things and I, my heart just breaks and I don't know what to do about it it happens all the time I get overwhelmed by what I see around me and, and like, what do I do now, Lord? I, I can't do anything significant. I'm nobody. Most people don't even know our church exists. What are we going to do? I mean, if we were some big church that had signs and maybe we could do something, but I mean, that's the way I feel a lot of times. And Nehemiah looks and he says, Jer Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned down. Come. Let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. Like, come on, let's rebuild our lives together. Come on. Let's, let's not be a disgrace to God. Let's confess our sins. Let's confess. Let's, let's get busy about doing the work of building what he wants to build. 
I love this. He's like, God has laid it on my heart. And what he's laid on my heart is for us to not be in trouble, but to have protection. Listen, when you're discipling someone, when you look at God's laws, his rules and his laws are there to provide walls for you. They're protection. And when you kick over a wall and you're like, just come on in, that's problematic. His walls are not there to keep you like, oh, I can't do anything. Well, if that's your heart, then you don't have the right heart for God. God's established boundaries because he doesn't want us to be disgraced. We looked at that in Song of Solomon, right? When she said, I've protected the vineyard. I've, I've, I've built the wall for you. Nehemiah goes on, he says, I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. And they said, let's start rebuilding. And they were encouraged to do this good work. Look at what Nehemiah does. He looks and he says, I told them, guys, you have to see how the gracious hand of God has been working up until this moment. See, the way you motivate people is you take them back. Do you understand Ruth, do you understand Esther? Do you see what God has done for his people, for us? Do you understand? Look how faithful he's been. He said 70 years. 70 years was over and we've got a temple. Like, what are you doing? Like, he's faithful. Like, Nehemiah's like, come on. Don't, don't just give up. Let's fight together to honor the Lord. And they said, wow, that's encouraging. Now we'll see later they get discouraged because it gets hard. Because doing God's work is hard and people attack it. Anytime you want to do something that's good, it always makes someone else look bad and that's why they start throwing stones at you. Because they don't want to look bad. Well now if you're not looking like a disgrace and you look good, then, then I look like a disgrace. Right? It's like skiing. It's like, okay, I'm not as bad as that guy. Right? When you're feeling really discouraged out there because you're like the worst one and you're ditching before you hit the building, right? And you're like, I hope somebody else, oh, that guy, yeah, he's, whew. man, he can't even stand up. I, oh, I feel bad for that guy, right? And in my heart, I'm thinking, oh, okay, I feel a little bit better about myself because he looks so disgraceful. That is so wicked in my heart, but that's what we do. And God's like, no. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Nehemiah 2.19 goes on and says this. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and the Jeshurim and, the, and Jes, Jesim the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I love this. The first thing they come with is they come at him and say, there's no way the king could have could have blessed this. See, they don't know that Nehemiah has been blessed by the king to come, and the king said, take all the wood and the forest you want to do whatever you, like they have no idea yet that he has paperwork that says he can be doing this. All they're trying to do is, we got to find some way to stop it, and the best way to stop anything is to say, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. You better stop that. Well, it depends on if God told me to do it. I might get in trouble, but if God told me to do it, then I should still keep doing it. No, you're going to get in trouble. You don't want to be in trouble. You don't want to surf. You don't want to suffer. You don't want the king to be mad. See, that's what people do. We, we throw it there. This, this idea of put the law on you. That's what they do. Look at what Galatians says. 
And again, they're trying to get them to say, you're doing something wrong. You're doing something evil. Galatians says, brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each person should examine his own work, and then he will have a reason for boasting in himself alone, and not in respect to someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Nehemiah is getting ready to tell the people, each of you is going to have to build your section of wall. Every one of you. Your family, your wall. Step up. I mean, he's just, he's bold about it. And he's looking, and it's the same thing in Galatians, only we're building a spiritual wall, a spiritual temple, and this time God was using a physical wall and a physical temple to represent a spiritual thing that was coming. And so here you have Paul saying, if anyone's caught in any wrongdoing, you could have looked at this and said, oh, we must be wrong. We must be caught in wrongdoing. Oh, Nehemiah, the king's going to be mad at us. And then Nehemiah's going to be like, whose signature is that? Well, that's Artaxerxes' signature. Yeah, let's get busy. Let's go cut some wood. <laughs> like, we want to like point fingers instead of examining our heart. These guys have no desire to examine their own hearts. They have no desire to ask the king if it's wrong or not. Did they go to the king and ask? Oh, no, 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 no. They just brought up an accusation. We're to be ones that actually look and say, is that person doing something wrong or are they just annoying? To me, there's a difference. There are things people do that aren't evil that just annoy you. I've been married for a long time. Trust me. Ask Susan. She'll tell you the things that aren't evil that just annoy her. Because it's just me. And I try to change, and it doesn't work. And I get frustrated. And I want it to change. And she has to, like, be patient with me and restore me gently. <laughs> like, that's how relationships work. And it's long-term and long-suffering. He goes on in Galatians says this, because the one who sows in his flesh will reap corruption from the flesh, but the one who sows in the spirit, remember the heart of the flesh and the heart of the spirit, will reap eternal life from the spirit. So we must not get tired of doing good. That's what Nehemiah is saying. You guys are going to start with a bang. You're going to be real excited about this new relationship, this new thing you have, and it's going to get hard, I'm telling you. It's going to be rough. There are going to be some, some tough patches don't grow tired of doing the right thing, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially those who belong to the household of faith. God is building a house. He's building a church. Our hearts need to be laid on that foundation, God says. Nehemiah goes on to say, I gave them this reply. So they attack him, and here's the reply he gives. King Artaxerxes told me I could do this. Is that his reply? He sees right through it. He doesn't even give them the benefit of telling them that he has permission to do it. Because he knows that he does have permission, and if they decide they're not going to go talk to the king, they're just going to attack, Artaxerxes is going to come kill them. So Nehemiah's like, I'm not going to tell you I have king's paperwork. I want to see what you're going to do. So I'm going to tell you what the real truth is. See, there's a guy behind Artaxerxes called God. So the God of heaven is the one who will grant us success, not Artaxerxes. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim to Jerusalem. Because God said you don't. We're going to start building. You're going to have to decide what you're going to do. 
And again, now they actually have to go check with the king instead of making an accusation that the king told them or that the, no, 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 now you're going to have to go check and I'm not going to give you the benefit. And if you attack us, I've got Artaxerxes and I've got cavalry. Remember, he came with cavalry with him. He came with an army, no one, but a little bit of an army. Fine, attack me. Let's see what happens. Because when I pull out the king's paperwork, the armies are going to come. See, he calls their bluff. We won't do that in Christianity today. We are so wimpy. We're of everything. We will not just call people's bluff lovingly. He does, he's not mean. He doesn't say, and you guys are morons, and I hate all of you. He just says, the God of heaven said that he's going to grant us success. And Oh, and by the way, you know the truth. You don't have any right to what we're doing or not doing. You have no say. That's bold. He goes on, he says this. We're going to read chapter 3 quickly. I'm not even going to cover much. Because here's what happens. They get busy building. And it says this. Elisha, the high priest, and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. What did they rebuild first? Why? Sacrifices. The first gate they build is the one that is the sacrifice for them to be forgiven for their sins, the sheep gate, where the sheep go in and out. They're the most valuable prized possession, the Lamb of God. They rebuild the sheep gate, and the priests rebuild that gate because they're the ones in charge of making sure that the sins are covered. Man, that's beautiful if you think about it. And then it says, they dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel, they, de- they, they dedicated it. The men of Jericho built next to Elisha, and next to them, Zachar, son of Imri, built. Everybody's involved. The history of God is involved. The men of Jericho, you remember, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. <laughs> the men of Jericho are rebuilding a wall. That's awesome. Okay, it goes on. It says this. The sons of Hanessa built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts and bars. Next to them, Mormoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, made repairs. Beside them, Meshalem, son of Berkiah, son of Meshebel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Bana. That's not banana, it's Bana. Made repairs. Beside them, the... T- Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. How would you like that to be written about you in God's word forever? But their nobles didn't raise a finger. Yeah, you guys all do the work. We're just going to sit back and kind of chill. Like, God wrote it down. Like, I just want everybody to know who's doing the work and who's not. It goes on and says this. Jodiah, son of Paseah, and Meshalem, son of Besodeah, repaired the old gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, the repairs were done by Melathiah, the Gibeonite. Do you remember the story of the Gibeonites? The Gibeonites were supposed to be a people God's people were supposed to get rid of. The Gibeonites deceived the people of God. They acted like they were from far off. God, Joshua, made a covenant with them that they could be God's people. And guess what? God's still fulfilling his covenant to this group of people even though they lied, even though it was a mess. Because that's our God. Like, it's amazing when you read the names. They're rebuilding. And then it says, Jadon, the Meramothite, and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, who were under the authority of the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River. After him, Uzal, son of Hariah, the goldsmith, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, son of Perfume of the perfumer made repairs. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, son of Hur, ruled over half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. After them, Jediah, son of 
Harumapath made repairs across from his house. Next to him, Hadash, the son of Hashbaniah, made repairs. Malkajah, son of Haram, and Hashab, son of Parath Moab, made repairs to another section as well as to the tower of the ovens. Beside him, Shalom, son of Halosheth, ruler over the half district of Jerusalem, made repairs. He and his who? Daughters. I have two daughters. I think that's the coolest thing ever when I read that. Like, can you imagine being the governors who wouldn't lift a finger and these guys' daughters are rebuilding the wall? Like, I'll show you. My daughters are out here getting it done. Like, can you imagine being one of the boys and like the daughters are beating? Like, the girls are working harder. We got, like, this is genius if I want my wall to be rebuilt. Get my daughters involved. Man, everybody's gonna get, go- I mean, this is awesome. In other words, everybody's committed. They are committed to this. It goes on, it says, Har- Hanan and the inhabitants of Zonoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars and repaired 500 yards of the wall to the dung gate. Malkajah, son of Rechab, ruler over the district of Beth Hakacharam, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and, re- and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Goes on and says, Shalom, son of Kol Hoseth, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and roofed it. Then he installed its doors, bolts, and bars. He also made repairs to the wall, the pool of Sal. Shelah, next to the king's garden, as far as the stairs that descended from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk. Remember, Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts. It was a common name of that day, kind of like Matt. Okay, so it goes on. It says, ruler over half the district of Beth Zer made repairs to appoint the opposite of the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and the house of the warriors. Next to him, the Levites made repairs under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashiba, ruler over the half district of Kaliah, made repairs for his district. After him, their fellow Levites made repairs under Ben. Benui, son of Hinnadad, ruler over the half district of Kaliah. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler over Mizpah, made repair to another section opposite the eight, uh, accent to the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, son of Zabi, diligently repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of Elisha the high priest. Beside him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of ha- Hakaz made repairs to another section from the door of Elisha's house to the end of the house, and next to him, the priests from the surrounding area made repairs. After him, Benjamin, the Hashab, made repairs opposite their house. Beside them, Azara, son of Messiah, son of uh, Aniah, made repairs beside his house. After him, Benui, son of Henadad, made repairs to another section from the house of Azariah, the, the angle, and to the, to the corner. Pal. Palau, son of Uzziah, or Uzziah, made repairs opposite the angle and tower that juts out from the upper palace of the king by the courtyard of the guard. Beside him, Padiah, son, you tired yet? Parosh and the temple servants living in Ophel made repairs opposite the water gate toward the east and tower that juts out. Next to him, the Tekoites made repairs to another section from the point opposite the great tower that juts out as far as the wall of Ophel. Each of the priests made repairs above the horse gate, each opposite his own house. After that, Zadok, son of Emir, made repairs opposite of his house. You see a pattern? And beside him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shilamiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalpha, made repairs to another section. And after them, Mishalem, son of Berkiah, made repairs opposite this room. Next to him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs to the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate, as far as the upper room of the corner. The goldsmiths and merchants made repairs between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate. <laughs> 
That's all of chapter 3. Why did I read through all of that? Because God says there's going to come a day when you stand before him someday, and he's going to do the same thing with your life. And he's going to look at you, and he's going to say, well done. If you know him, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter your rest. Look at all that you stored up for me, for my name. Thank you for rebuilding your life and the lives of others. Thank you for participating in what I want you to do. And our name will be written in the book of life and our name will be written on the treasures of heaven. God doesn't forget people, period. He doesn't forget, he forgives. And he reestablishes and that should encourage us. And that's why these names are important. It's because it gives us hope that I'm not doing this in vain. That it's not for that we're building something by walking with him, by just building the little, what I have in front of me. I just got to work on what's in front of me. I don't need to worry about everything else. Just the next right step, the next stone, the next bolt, the next board, just the next thing. And if I do that and I keep doing that, then God's going to give me other opportunities. Like some of these people got to go work on other parts to help. It's a beautiful picture of what God wants to do in his church. As we wrap up, Nehemiah 4, 1 through 3 says this. Seems like everything is going well. They're having success. They are rebuilding. Everything's going along. And then when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful man of, Sam, uh, of Samaria, thank you, and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Notice how he attacks who they are, these pathetic Jews. Can they restore it by themselves? No, you moron, they need God with them. Didn't Nehemiah say that? And then it says, will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? You can just see him sit in a room with all his buddies being like, yeah, they can't. They're nothing. They're just, you can just hear the conversation, right? Then it goes on and says, can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite who was beside him said, indeed, even if a fox climbed up on what they're building, he would break down the stone wall. In other words, this wall is a joke. You know what's interesting about a wall? A wall's only as good as the people defending it. And the wall they're getting ready to build isn't as great as the wall before, just like the temple wasn't as great as the temple before. But the way they build it, they all learn how to defend God's honor. Nehemiah is training a group of people to know how to defend who God is, not have a great wall. And they don't get that. All they can see is the wall and say, that's wimpy compared to what we have. Yeah, did, didn't Jericho have the greatest walls of any city probably ever? And didn't they collapse? Oh, and didn't they find the archaeological dig of the city when they said it didn't exist back in the 50s? Oh, yeah, they did. By the way, these guys, Sanballat, they actually found in 1903, they found some documents, Persian documents that have these guys' names on it. These guys really existed. They really were rulers where God said they were, even though for a long time people said they weren't real because they didn't have any evidence. 
See, God doesn't forget, and he encourages, and he says, look, you can mock, you can say what you want, but if my people's hearts are surrendered to me, if, if God has laid his heart in your heart, and you are for his heart, man, God has some work for us to do, and that should excite us. Look at what First Peter says as we finish. He says, so rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. That's everything that Sambalot just did, right? Hypocrisy, deceit. The king doesn't want you to build. You guys are terrible. You're Jews. You can't do that. Rid yourself of that kind of talk. Don't have that kind of talk. But like newborn infants, desire pure spiritual milk so that you may grow Buy it for your salvation, since you've tasted that the Lord is good. Coming to him, a living stone. They said they were dead, burned up stones. And God says, Jesus said, I can, my, God can raise up people from these stones. He can make bread from these stones, Jesus said. Coming to him, a living stone, rejected by men. They're being rejected by the men of their day, but chosen and valuable to God to do his work. You yourselves as living stones being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Priests offer sacrifices for themselves and for others. They lay down their life so that others can have life. That's what we are. That's what we're called to do. And then he says, to offer your spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, you're not offering spiritual sacrifices so that you can be accepted by God. You're offering spiritual sacrifices because you know you've already been accepted by God. And so my response to that is just to say, thank you, here's some more of my life. Thank you, here's another stone. Thank you, here's another board. Thank you, here's another. That's what we do. And that's what Nehemiah is calling the people of his day, and it's the picture of what we do today to build the church, to build God's people. And it starts with us right in front of us. It starts with, has God laid something on your heart? Are there people he has laid on your heart? See, oftentimes, God will lay something on your heart. But remember, Nehemiah wasn't concerned about the wall. Nehemiah was concerned about the people in the wall. And we can get real concerned about the stuff, but not the people. Peter says, you are stones. God's going to raise you up and build you into something that people are going to look at and go, How? That's who we are, and that should encourage a world that's a mess like the world Nehemiah was in. And whatever we're called to do, for however long we're called to do it, even Nehemiah going back to be a slave, man, do it and trust that God's going to put it in paper. He's going to write it down. We have Nehemiah's story because God's like, most of his life, almost his entire life was spent being a slave, drinking poison. But there were these couple of moments when 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 I'm going to talk about and put in Scripture. I don't know what God has for you, but I know this. Do what's right in front of you. Trust him. Love him. Commit to him. That's the most important thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for all that you do. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that you have established your kingdom, that it's coming that your will will be done. Father, I pray for those of us that are here that may feel like we're dead inside. That may feel like our heart has nothing but mess. Lord, I pray that they, anyone feeling that would see that you say that you want to give them a new heart. 
You want to put a new spirit in them because of what you've done, that you've paid the price. They don't have to measure up to you because they can't. We're just dead stones. But if we'll commit our heart to you, you'll take our dead, stony heart and you'll give us a heart of flesh. You'll soften it so that we can obey you from a heart of thankfulness instead of a heart of manipulation. Father, if there's anyone here who hasn't committed to you, they haven't laid down their life, they haven't gotten silent before you and said, I'm done, I surrender, I pray today would be the day. And Lord, for those of us who are looking tomorrow at another day, another stone, another board, a day in front of us, I pray that we would trust you. I pray that we would take the next right step, that we would walk with you and trust that even if we don't see the benefits in our lifetime of what we do to honor you, that it will be written down and will be read about and we'll see it for eternity. Lord, I thank you for those who have been faithful before us. And I thank you for those that will be faithful because of us and our faithfulness to you. Lord, help us surrender to you. Help us to build what you want to build. Help us to have your heart's desires, not just ours. We pray in your name.